and the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Well, today is Mother's Day, and I would like to wish all of our mothers a very happy Mother's Day. And I want the mothers to know that today's sermon is not about you. It will not be a sermon directed to mothers. Uh, in fact, it will be a sermon directed to fathers and sons. And so I know that many mothers wish that their fathers and sons would hear more sermons directed to them. And so this is my gift to you, mothers. <laughs> As you know, we've been walking through the Gospel of John. And today we are in John chapter 4 at the very end of the chapter. If you have a Bible handy, I would invite you to open to the Gospel of John. Or if you would like to follow along in your worship order, you will find the sermon text printed there as well. Our sermon text for today is John 4, 43 to 54. And if you are willing and able, I will invite you to stand and give your undivided attention to the reading of God's holy word. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, where they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The word of the Lord. Thanks to God. God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, Amen. You may be seated. In his novel, The Road... Cormac McCarthy tells the story of a father and a son who are on a journey across a barren, silent, godless land to only God knows where. It is an extremely violent and dangerous post-apocalyptic world. The father loves his son and vows to do everything in his power to keep him safe. At one point he thinks he knew only that the child was his warrant. And he said, if he is not the word of God, God never spoke. 
At one point in the story, the boy falls gravely ill, and the father desperately tries to save him, but there is no remedy, and none of his efforts seem to work. He holds the boy close and feels like it is the last day of the earth. He fears that the boy will slip away into darkness, but he cannot bear to let the boy go alone. At one point in desperation, the father walks out to the edge of the light and stands with clenched fists on the top of his skull and falls to his knees in sobbing rage. Then he wraps his arms around the boy and falls into a dreamless sleep. Sometime later, when the father awakes, the fire was dead. But the boy was alive and walking over. Now, one thing I love about that story is the way the father loves his son and the way the son loves his father. Not in a sappy and silly way, but in a serious and sacrificial way. The story under consideration today is also about the love between a father and his son. And to set the stage, I want us to look a little bit at the backstory leading up to the text under consideration. Between Jesus' last visit to Cana in Galilee and this visit... News about Jesus has spread throughout Galilee. Undoubtedly, the people of Cana had heard that Jesus turned water into wine. Many of the people at Cana and Galilee had seen what Jesus did at Jerusalem. How he confronted the religious leaders and wrecked shop at the temple. Remember how he made the whip of cords and he drove out the money changers and the animals and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And if that were not enough, he also performed many signs in Jerusalem. Now unlike you, the people of Cana in Galilee did not know anything about Jesus' conversations with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Nor did they know he had spent a couple of days in Samaria. All they know is that Jesus was gone and now he's back again. Oddly enough, in this story, John quotes Jesus as saying, A prophet is without honor in his hometown. And yet this is confusing because the Galileans welcomed him. And so we kind of pause and say, wait, what's going on here? But John wants us to know that he was not referring to Galilee as Jesus' hometown. He's actually referring to Jerusalem as Jesus' hometown. In John's Gospel, the storyline reveals that Jesus is the God-man, the Word made flesh, the glory of the Lord, full of grace and truth. And so the first thing we see is the glory of the Lord going up to the temple, His true hometown. Then we see the glory of the Lord departing from the temple at Jerusalem and moving out of the hometown, Jerusalem, and then going away from the temple, away from his people, out to the Gentiles. As we saw last week, he went to the Samaritan woman. And as we see this week, he will meet a royal official. So Jesus has no honor in his hometown, meaning he has no honor in Jerusalem, 
But he is honored in Cana, which was not his hometown. When he comes again to Cana in Galilee, the people welcome him. They pat him on the back, shake his hand. They literally took hold of him. Why? Because this is the place where Jesus had revived a dying wedding celebration and revealed his glory to his apostles. So in Cana of Galilee, Jesus is a local hero. If you can remember back to the time we looked at the story of the wedding in Cana, we saw that at the end of the wedding, Jesus and his mother and disciples and his brothers all went from Cana down to Capernaum and they spent a few days there. So undoubtedly, the people of Capernaum also heard stories about Jesus. It's likely that they knew Jesus. They knew his mother and brothers. You can rest assured that everyone had heard the story of Jesus turning water into wine at Cana. It was likely Mary that told all of her friends and family in Capernaum and bragged about her son Jesus and all the things he was doing. Jesus' brothers might have even told a few stories of their own. Now the reason that little detail is so significant is because we meet a royal official in this story who lived at Capernaum. His son is sick to the point of death. He is terminally ill. None of us know if this man was a Jew or a Gentile, but let me say it makes no difference in the story. What John wants us to see is that he was a father. And when he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to Jesus. Based on all the stories he had heard, he knew that Jesus was capable of doing amazing things. And so this man goes to find Jesus. But how did he hear that Jesus was in Canaan? I mean, there's no social media, there's no Facebook, no one in Cana is tweeting, Jesus just got back, y'all. None of that going on. Someone from Cana who knew about Jesus must have traveled up to Capernaum, or down to Capernaum, and then told someone who told someone, and word got around. The point is that news about Jesus is traveling fast from one person to another, from one community to another. People were talking about Jesus and what he was up to. So when this royal official heard that Jesus was in Cana, he went to find him. He believed enough to go look for Jesus. Now we read over this as if it were easy. He went to Jesus as if it only took five minutes. But I want, you to, I want to give you a little bit of a geography lesson here. And here it is. It's 20 miles between Cana and Capernaum. And if you're in Capernaum going to Cana, it's uphill all the way. Because you're going from a sea, from the seashore, sea level, all the way up to Cana. So it's 20 miles uphill and you're walking. You don't have a nice car to ride in. You don't have a bus. No one's taking you in a taxi. You're going to walk 20 miles. Now, to help you understand what 20 miles might look and feel like, imagine that when we end our service today, we all start walking from here to downtown Dallas. That's 20 miles. Some of you are going to get there faster than others. Some of you aren't going to get there at all because you're going to stop at the nearest fast food place and just have a Coke and say, I'm done. 20 miles is a long way to walk. So it's walk, he's walking 20 miles all uphill. 
I wonder if you could walk in his sandals for a bit with me as we walk through this story. Imagine leaving your sick child at home while you walk 20 miles away, one way, to look for a stranger who allegedly turned water into wine, and you're going to ask this stranger to come back down with you 20 miles the other way to heal your terminally ill son. Now, if that were your situation, how fast do you think you would walk that 20 miles? And what are the chances that you're going to convince that stranger to turn around and walk 20 miles with you back to the house? We don't know how quickly he made the 20-mile trek, but we do know that when he found Jesus, he offered this prayer. He prayed, Lord, come down before my child dies. Now that's quite a prayer. This is not the polite request of one gentleman to another. This is not the formal request of a royal official to a physician. This is the humble plea of a servant to his Lord. This is the frantic prayer of a father to God. On May 5th, 1999, my wife and I had the joy and pleasure of welcoming our third child into the world. He was born by C-section. Our doctor let me take pictures of him exiting my wife's belly. Alien. He took the newborn and he held him up over the screen so my wife could see his gooey and slimy body. The nurses took him and started cleaning him up and they let me switch on my video camera. Tape is rolling and I'm looking through the viewfinder at this little baby boy and he's squirming and crying and moving about. But then all of a sudden, in the midst of all the oohs and the ahs, he stopped crying. His head rolled to one side, his hands went limp and he turned blue. I drop the camera, the nurses start moving about, one grabs me and pulls me aside, and the next thing I know they're rolling him down the hall to NICU. In the flash of a moment, all of our happiness was switched to sorrow and fear and worry. What's going to happen to this boy? Why isn't he breathing? happy to report that the boy survived. He's with us today. He turned 17 years old a few days ago. I'll never forget that moment or the days that follow. I'm also happy to say that that's the only trouble he's ever had. Now I know that most of you have experienced similar things in your life with your own children and your grandchildren. Some of you have experienced the heartache that comes from watching your children suffer a range of physical ailments, a weakness or a sickness that you are powerless to heal. And some of you have experienced the heartache that comes from watching your child suffer emotional trauma, a loneliness or an emptiness that you are powerless to fill. 
And some of you have experienced the heartache that comes with watching your sons and daughters struggle with real spiritual trouble and problems, a brokenness, a darkness, or a stubbornness that you are powerless to fix. So what do you do as a mother or a father? What can you do? It's no secret that I struggle to devote myself in prayer as I ought. I've said this to you many times. But you should know that there are some things that drive me to my knees in a person, like my concern for all of you. But there's nothing that drives me to my face in prayer quite like the deep concern I feel for my own children. So when I see my sons facing physical problems or spiritual crises, or if it seems that they are at the point of death, I go knocking on heaven's door, offering the frantic prayer of this official father. Lord, come down before my child dies. Lord, you are above, I am below. Come down. You're too high and lofty. You're too far away. Come down before. What's taking you so long? What are you waiting for? Come down before my child dies. He's a part of me. He's an extension of my life. Come down before my child dies. Death is the end, and after that, there's nothing you can do. Anyone who knows the Old Testament knows that this story is very similar to stories that we find in the Old Testament. When this official, this father, found Jesus, he prayed, Lord, come down before my child dies. But he's not the only one who ever offered such a prayer. For example, in 2 Samuel 12, a royal official sought God on behalf of his child born to his lover Bathsheba. And this royal official fasted and he went in and he lay all night on the ground and the elders of his house stood before him to raise him from the ground, but he would not get up and he would not eat food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died. Later on in that same man's story, the same official mourned for one of his other sons day after day. And when his son was in trouble, he requested of his friends, for my sake, deal gently with my son and protect him. But when he heard that his son was killed, he was deeply moved and he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. Oh, my son. Oh, my son, my son, my son. And that royal official's name was King David. Now, in those stories, things did not go exactly as that father prayed. One son died as an infant. The other died as an adult. In both cases, the father was left grieving and mourning deeply over his loss. Some people I know have experienced similar, similar losses in their lives involving their own children. So with all these stories in the background of our experience and in the background of Scripture, what might we expect to see happen in the story that we're looking at today? 
We're right to wonder, what will Jesus do with the man who says, Lord, come down before my child dies? Now, before we look at Jesus' response to the man's prayer request, I want to point out, and I want to say that I am struck by this father's eagerness and this father's willingness to do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. Not only for himself, but for his child. He leaves his post. He takes a pilgrimage. He goes the distance to seek the Lord while he may be found. No excuses. No pretense. No complaints. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about this. This man goes to Jesus, seeking him out on behalf of his child. I want to put to you the question, what would you do? To seek the Lord in prayer on behalf of your son or daughter. If they were in danger. If they were at the point of death. Either physically, emotionally, spiritually. Is there anything in heaven or earth that can hold you back. Or deter you from crying out to the Lord on their behalf. (coughs) When this man found Jesus. He simply prayed, Lord come down before my child dies. Again, the father believes enough to seek the Lord Jesus, and yet he imagines that Jesus' power is limited, perhaps constrained by space and time realities. He believes Jesus can heal, but he must first minimize the distance between himself and the sick boy to do so. He believes Jesus can heal, but he must do it quickly before death takes the boy. For after that, nothing can be done. He believed Jesus can heal, but only within the bounds of natural and physical law. So in other words, this royal official, this father believes that Jesus can save his son, but certain conditions and limitations may apply. He asked Jesus to come save his son, but notice he wants Jesus to do it on his terms and in his way. The man believes, but his faith is shaped by his own experience in the world. I imagine that many of us are just like that. We want the Lord to come down before our child dies, but we want him to do it our way. We've figured out what he needs to do to answer our prayer. Now, if the official and if we had understood the sign of turning water into wine, we would all know that the word made flesh is not constrained by space and time realities. Jesus brought a wedding feast back to life from the dead by the power of his word alone. And if he could bring a wedding feast back to life with a little bit of wine by the power of his word, surely he could bring your child back from the point of death by the power of his word. Surely he could bring your heart back to life by the power of his spirit. Surely he could change your despair to hope. Surely He could change your broken past into a healed future. Surely He can refill your empty soul. Surely He could revive your marriage 
or rescue your child from the point of death. Jesus says to the father, who is also a royal official, Go. Your son lives. Now notice the father asks Jesus to come. Jesus' response is, Go. The father said, Before my child dies, Jesus told him, Your son will live. Jesus challenges everything this man knows and understands about life in the real world, about human experience under the sun. He brings the man to the edge of the light and charges him to walk by faith and not by sight, to walk by divine revelation and no longer by personal experiences. The remarkable thing about the story is that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke. And he went. Put another way, the man believed the word of the word who became man. He knew only that the child was his warrant. And he thought, if the Christ is not the word of God, God never spoke. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. He asked them the hour when he began to get better. They said, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. I wonder how long it took him to go downhill 20 miles back to his son. I wonder what went through his mind on that long journey back home. Jesus in the rearview mirror, his son before him, and he has the promise that his son is alive. I wonder if he looked back. I wonder if he hesitated. I don't know what went through his mind. I can only imagine, because I know some things that would have gone through my mind. But how gracious that the servants were already on their way to find him. Long before he got to the house, they were coming with the good news. Your son lives. Interesting note here in the story. He himself believed and his whole household. He himself believed and his whole household. This is one of the rare occasions in John's writings when we see a household conversion. The whole family coming to Jesus because the father first believed on behalf of his son. Now it is generally true that as the head of the household goes, so goes the household. Generally true. Like fathers, like sons. So in this story, first the royal official trusted in Jesus, and then his whole family followed suit. The irony is this. When it comes to the father seeking the Lord for his son's spiritual well-being, people get nervous. When it comes to the father seeking the Lord for his son's physical well-being, no one bats an eye. Everyone is just fine. He's being a good father. That's what fathers should do. But when it comes to the father trusting the Lord for his son's spiritual well-being, everyone loses their minds. 
as if somehow the father is imposing his will or forcing religion on his son. But in reality, he is doing what all fathers are supposed to do, which is to take care of their children by taking their children to Jesus in sickness and in health, in righteousness and in sin, come what may, no matter what. So fathers and mothers, if you want your sons and daughters to know the Lord, then you must first seek the Lord while He may be found. And you must show them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And sons and daughters, if you want to live, you must trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ from your heart. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did when He came from Judea to Galilee. In this story, we see love between the father and the son. Not just a father and a son, but we also see the love between the father and the son. Anyone who knows the New Testament will know that this story is very similar to the story of all stories. This story foreshadows the story of the son who will drink the cup his father gives him. He will be hung on a tree. He will be suspended between heaven and earth to the point of death for the life of the world. This story also foreshadows the story of the father who will look upon his beloved son, taking up our sins, laying down his life, giving up his spirit, and he will cry as it were, my son, my son, my son. And no one will come down before he dies. This is how God loves the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Come down before my son dies. That's a legitimate prayer for us to offer. But it's not one that the father was willing to offer for himself. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But this sign was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. How do you take hold of that life? All you need to do is obey His mother's wise counsel. Do whatever He tells you. Take Him at His word. Obey His voice. Trust Him. Now go. Your son will live. If you believe 
you and your household shall be saved. God of our salvation, we cry out to you on behalf of our children, on behalf of our sons and daughters, we ask you, Lord, come down before our children die. The world is a dangerous place, spiritually, emotionally, physically, intellectually. They're bombarded with a variety of heresies and falsehoods. Relationally, they're bombarded with all kinds of temptations and trials. And we pray, O oh God, that you will come down before they die. We pray that you will answer our prayer by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the grace of your word, and that you will work faith into the hearts of our sons and daughters. We pray also for ourselves as mothers and fathers, that you will work the same grace in us, that we may repent our sins and trust in Jesus as well. We pray that you will give us the grace to seek you out, no matter what, no matter how far or difficult or trying the obstacle may be, give us the grace to seek you out and to pursue you. For in you we find life. You have the words of eternal life, and there is no one else to whom we may go. I pray, O oh God, that you will deepen our faith, that you will increase our faith, that we may trust you and walk by faith and not by sight. Our experiences are good, but often they mislead and hinder us from trusting you as we are. So we pray that you will reveal to us your truth and your promises, and that by the power of your word, we may find life that is truly life in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we also pray for families in our community who do not know the Lord, who are far from Him and lost and struggling in their own sin and misery. We pray that you will send us out as witnesses to bear testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that they too may enjoy life in Him. We pray, O oh God, that the Word, the news, the story of your Son Jesus will flow from our lips into the ears and hearts of our neighbors. Send us on mission that the world may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you.